So when I was in third grade, I had the opportunity to go on a business trip with my dad. And we, my dad was a, a lobbyist, and so I know uh, he's, he's a lawyer and a Christian, and those two can coexist. Um, but he uh, took me on this trip to Washington, D.C., so I had the opportunity to go with my dad to some of his business meetings and, and sit there with him. We got to go to the Smithsonian, which was an absolute blast, and one of my favorite memories of that trip was uh, going to the museums with him. I got to fly in a plane for the first time. Uh, one of his friends gave me like $5, and I used that $5 to buy a little orange label maker and brought that home. That was one of my favorite memories from that trip. And so when I, I, that always has sat with me as one of my favorite experiences as a child, just having this trip with my dad. And so I wanted my kids to experience the same thing I did. And so I decided that each one of my kids, when they were in third grade, was going to be able to go on a trip with me um, because I get a chance to go and travel and speak at conferences and stuff. And so I'd bring one of them on each of my trips. And so my daughter and I, we went to Florida uh, for her trip. And then my, my oldest son, we went to Florida for his trip. And then my, my third-born, Ethan, by the time it came around to his third grade year, the, the best trip that I had that year I could take him on was to St. Louis, Missouri. And so the other two kids had gotten Florida, so I had to hype up St. Louis. And so I talked to him about St. Louis and how great it was. I showed him pictures of the arch, you know, and all of that, and it got him actually pretty excited about that trip. And as it turns out, a little too excited about that trip because it got canceled. Um, the person I know, right? So the person who had scheduled me for this trip double booked main speakers for this conference and asked if I would just come back at a later date and canceled me. You know, I was the one to cancel out of the two. Um, and so this thing got canceled and, and it broke little Ethan's heart. And so pretty quickly, I, I got another trip scheduled and it was to Atlanta, which objectively is better than St. Louis, right? There's a lot more to do in Atlanta. We, you know, so I took him to Atlanta and we, we, we went to a conference there and, and we went to the Coca-Cola Museum, right? And it was just an amazing trip. And yet he always remembered that I didn't take him to St. Louis. <laughs> and, and, and for a long time, he would be just like, yeah, but we didn't get to go to St. Louis. And then he would say things like, do you remember when you broke your promise to me about taking me to St. Louis, right? It's like, it's like a dagger, right? I know. And, and here's the thing. So many of you as parents, I see the look on your face. You've been there, haven't you? Where, where you've like, like, like you've promised something to your kids and then circumstances change. And then they say something like this to you, but you said... And it could be something minor, like, but you said we'd go to McDonald's. And it could be something huge, like you said, we'd go to St. Louis, Missouri. Now, why is that such a universal experience for those of us who are parents? Because our kids expect that their parents are going to be truthful. And because their parents teach them to be truthful. And they don't quite know yet the difference between a lie and circumstances changing behind breaking a promise and things out of our control happening. But let's just be honest for a second. We don't really grow out of that, do we? What happens when people uh, in our lives change courses on us? When they make new plans, when, when they had other plans set? Or we, what do we do? We still take it as a personal affront, don't we? 
even as adults, when someone drops the ball, maybe through no fault of their own, we get hurt and we're like, but you said, and that is exactly the context of the passage that we're in today in 2 Corinthians. If you're new around here, welcome. We're glad you're here. Um, we are working our way through a, a letter in the New Testament of the Bible called 2 Corinthians, written by a guy named Paul. He was a church planter, started new churches, and he was writing a letter to a church that he had started and spent a year and a half in. A and by the way, if you're new to us, uh, uh, there's a journal in the back for the series. Grab one of these. It's free on the way out. If you're online. You can get this on our website, riftchurch.com. And I think I speak for all of us when I say we'd love to see your face in person sometime. But anyway, go ahead and grab that. But we're in the fourth week of this series, and we've been hinting at what we're going to talk about today for that entire four weeks. The fact that there is, in the minds of the people that this Apostle Paul was writing to, a broken promise. And this is what it is. If you go back to his previous letter, 1 Corinthians, he wrote this to them in chapter 16. He said, I will come to you after I pass through Macedonia, for I will be traveling through Macedonia. That's the Department of Redundancy Department. Um, and perhaps I will remain with you or even spend the winter so that you may send me on my way wherever I go. I don't want to see you now just in passing since I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord allows. Now, now, now it's interesting to me that they probably didn't hear where he said, perhaps... They didn't hear where he said, if the Lord allows, because what ends up happening is circumstances change for Paul. The specific situation we'll get into next week in a lot more context, but suffice it to say, Paul did visit them, and, and, and there's a little bit of debate as to when this happened. I think what happened is Paul did visit them once, like he said, but he didn't visit them the second time because the first visit didn't go well. And word had gotten back to Paul uh, that they were upset that he kind of skipped over them. And I realized that this week I should have brought a map, and I didn't bring a map. So you just have to imagine it. Paul had to go to Macedonia, and and then he said, on the way there, I'm going to see you. And then on the way back, I'll see you again because he's going to go right by them. It'd be kind of like you're driving from Detroit to Mount Pleasant, right? And you're like, hey, I'm going to stop and see you in Lansing on the way. And so you do, but on the way back, you skip Lansing and don't stop. That's kind of what happened. And so they're like, well, wait a minute. You didn't stop. You said you were going to stay. In fact, you said you wanted to stay for a while. You said you wanted to hang out with us maybe for the whole winter. And then you didn't visit. And so Paul writes, in part, in 2 Corinthians, to clear up this situation with them. 2 Corinthians 1, verse 15, he says, because of this confidence, I plan to come to you first so that you could have a second benefit. That's the second visit. And to visit you on my way to Macedonia and then come to you again from Macedonia and be helped by you on the way to my journey to Judea. So either he didn't visit them either time on the way to Macedonia on the way back, or he did see them on the way to Macedonia and he skipped it on the way back. There's a little bit of debate about that. But look at this. It starts out with him saying, because of this confidence. Well, what is that? Well, that's the stuff we covered last week. And if you were here, you may remember that what Paul said last week is that his conscience was clear. 
His conscience was clear that the decisions he had made about visiting them or not visiting them had come from godly sincerity, that he wasn't like pulling the wool over their eyes. He wasn't lying to them, but circumstances had changed and he initially hoped to visit them a couple times so that they could, what does he say, help him on his journey. What does that mean? Well, it's kind of cool to know that the Apostle Paul uh, was supported a couple different ways for his ministry. One of the ways is he was uh, a tent maker. He was literally a tent maker. In fact, Christians will often refer to themselves as tent makers if they have a ministry job and another job, right? So a lot of Christians will still use that term today. Paul was called a tent maker because he was literally a tent maker. So that's what he did. And so he would travel in, he'd use that to support his ministry, but he would also sometimes get support, financial support and supplies from the cities he visited to give him enough to get to the next city that he had to go to where he could start making tents and stuff again. And one of the things that happened with the Corinthians is he said, I was expecting support out of you, but then he denied taking support from them. He wouldn't do it. And so that's another point of tension that they have with him is he wouldn't actually take the support, even though he said he was going to take the support. And we're going to get to that in a few chapters. So we're just going to wait for that. But verse 17 It says, now when I planned this, was I of two minds or what I plan, do I plan in a purely human way so that I say yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? Does he not sound like a dad? You get the tone, right? He's like a spiritual dad. He's like, okay, did I say yes, yes, no, no to you at the same time? What was Paul doing? He was gently and directly clearing the air. air. And he's like, listen, I wasn't being duplicitous. I wasn't lying to you. I wasn't breaking a promise. I intended to visit you. And he'll give his reasoning next week. You can read ahead if you want to. But here's the key point. He says, verse 18, as God is faithful, our message to you is not yes and no. Now, why is this such a big deal? Why can't Paul let this thing go? Well, let's camp out here for a little bit of a little bit of time. The reason kids get so bent out of shape when they think their parents are lying to them is because they expect better. They expect this person that is teaching them to be truthful is going to be truthful. It's why people rightly get hurt, right? And it's why ch- people rightly get hurt, let's just say in churches when people feel betrayed by their pastors and you can read oh about a million accounts of that online. People put it online because they're hurt, because they rightly expected something that they didn't get out of their spiritual leaders. And and, and so this is what Paul is facing. And, And what happens is it burns in the church because we follow Jesus. And Jesus famously declared in Matthew 5, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Anything more than this is from the evil one. The first time... I ever was rebuked by a Christian brother was with this verse. Back when I was uh, in middle school and high school, you're you're about to just get into the layers of nerd that is in my life. Um, When I was in middle school and high school, uh, my friend and I created a newsletter for our church. It was not the official newsletter. It was like the indie rag of our church. So we just had our counter newsletter to their newsletter. And, and in ours, we would just, we would put like official stuff about our student ministries that we were in, but we also would do cartoons and editorials and things like that.
had it. And the genius of our plot was we sold it. We didn't give it away. So we sold it to the old people in the church who were all nice enough to give us a few bucks. And this was our way of just, you know, it was a great racket. I, I often think about what a pain in the butt I was to my pastor when growing up. And this is just like one of those things. So anyway, so we had this newsletter that we would put out every, every month. And, and I was notoriously always late. Like I was supposed to write my articles, my stuff, and my friend was like really focused and he was gonna get this thing done, but I was always late and just really at the last minute doing all my stuff. And so what he did is he wrote an editorial in our Indie Rag newsletter, which by the way was called the Heartlight News. If you don't know what that means, look up Michael W. Smith. Um, but we, I, he wrote an editorial thinly veiled at me using this verse. <laughs> because I was not a faithful person. When I said yes, it was often no. When I said no, it was often yes. And his editorial cut me so much to the core that I still remember it today like 40 some odd years later because I realized that my lack of faithfulness was a bigger deal than just missing a deadline. See, as followers of Jesus, we are to be whole, integrated people. That's what, we're, we're, that, that's what we're doing. We're broken people that are being put back together. And over the course of a lifetime of following Jesus and being transformed by the Holy Spirit from the inside out, we are who we say we are, and we do what we say we're going to do. And so there's all kinds of practical ramifications. When we volunteer somewhere, be that in the church or in the community, people should never be worried about whether or not we're going to show up. We should be the people who just do because our yes is yes and our no is no. When we make a promise to our kids, we should keep the promise to our kids because we're people who, when our yes is yes and our no is no, we should be the guy who always nails the deadlines at work. If, if we say it's gonna get done, we should be the ones that always get it done, that our bosses can always count us. We tell our roommates we're gonna do the dishes. We should be the ones who do the dishes, dry the dishes, put the dishes away in the cupboard because they should be able to count on us circumstances may change and they do change. And that's a different thing. But we should be people who are known for our faithfulness. Why? Because our faithfulness is a picture of the one who is truly faithful. So let's go back in 1 Corinthians to 1 Corinthians 1.19. He says for the, actually, let's go back to 18. I don't know if you can pop that up or not. I'm just throwing them for a loop in the back. As God is faithful, our message to you is not yes and no. See, the reason Paul was concerned that they would see his life and see that he, his yes was yes and his no was no was because he represented God. Verse 19, for the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Sylvanus, Timothy, and I, did not become yes and no. On the contrary, in him, that's in Jesus, it is always yes. Now check this out. He doesn't just refer to Jesus as Jesus. He doesn't just refer to Jesus as Christ. He actually throws out the huge title here, Son of God, Jesus Christ for him. Why does he do that? I think what Paul is doing is he's, he's reminding us that we have surety in the name of Jesus because our God is a promise-keeping God. He is faithful even when we are faithless. You can anchor yourself on the promises of God and Jesus is the Son of God. So you can anchor yourself in Jesus. The promise-keeper himself is Jesus. And so in Jesus, the answer to the promise is always yes. Now watch this, verse 20. 
For every one of God's promises is yes in him, that's Jesus. Therefore, through him, that's Jesus, we also say amen to the glory of God. Now, this is one of those verses that I hear misinterpreted all the time. And this is what it looks like. People will look at this and they will say, if every one of God's promises is yes in Jesus, that means I can take every single promise in the Bible and I can apply it to myself in Jesus. And so this is how it works. People will find verses like, oh, I don't know, Jeremiah 29, 11. You laugh because you have it on a magnet on your fridge. For I know the plans I have for you. This is the Lord's declaration. Plans for your well-being, not for disaster. To give you a future and a hope. And we say yes, right? We say amen. We put it on a t-shirt and a bumper sticker and a hat. And, and we say, I'm claiming this one for myself, right? But let's take a beat. Who is the you in this passage? Well, we got to understand the context, don't we? Who is the you? Who's the promise made to? Well, the context here is Jeremiah is a prophet of God speaking to the Israelites who are in captivity in Babylon. And God is speaking to them through the prophet Jeremiah to let them know that they are not going to stay in captivity in slavery forever. It will not be the end for them. In fact, it goes on and it says, your fortunes will be restored. It actually goes on and it says you'll be gathered from all the nations and brought back to the promised land that God had promised you. We don't put those on a magnet. It was a promise to Israel. Now watch this. He also goes on to make another promise later on uh, in verse 18, which I won't put up here. I'll just read parts of it. He says, um, you'll be pursued with a sword, a famine, plague. I will make you a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth, a curse and a desolation, an object of storm and disgrace among the nations. You ever claim that promise for yourself? What we do is we tend to treat the promises of God like the horoscopes, right? We take the good ones and apply them to ourselves and we ignore the negative promises, the, the destructive swords and war and famine and plague, right? But, the, but that part, by the way, was promised to those who, who were Israelites who abandoned Israel and they made themselves, um, they ingratiated themselves fully into Babylon. That's who he was promising that to. So what happens is there's a set of promises to Israel and there was a set of promises to the Israelites who went with, along with the Babylonians and neither one of them were you. God keeps his promises to those to whom he makes the promises. So what does that mean when Paul writes, for every one of God's promises is yes in him, therefore through him we also say amen to the glory of God. This is actually more beautiful than if we treat it lightly. What he says is, every one of God's promises is yes in Jesus because Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of everything that God has ever promised. God promised Eve in the garden that one day her offspring would crush Satan under his foot. It was a promise to Eve, and Jesus is the fulfillment of that promise. 
God promised a guy named Abraham that one day his seed would be a blessing to the whole world. It was a promise to Abraham, and Jesus is the fulfillment of that promise. God promised David that one day his offspring would sit on this throne and rule forever, and the, 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 the answer to that promise is Jesus. In fact, God promises a guy named Zerubbabel, who you probably don't even know in the book of Haggai, that his family would be the greatest family exalted over all that ever lived, and that promise was fulfilled in Jesus. What we know is that all scripture bends toward Jesus. And he is the big yes to which we can say, along with the Apostle Paul, amen to the glory of God. God keeps his promises. His yes is yes. Verse 21 and 22, now, it is God who strengthens us together with you in Christ and who has anointed us. He has also put a seal on us and given us the spirit in our hearts as a down payment. So last week I was talking uh, with a couple college students after church about the Trinity. And one of the things I said about the Trinity, because that's what you do, you just talk about the Trinity. Uh, we're talking about the Trinity. And, and, and in the Trinity, we believe as, as followers of Jesus that we worship one God that exists eternally in three persons. And I said, yeah, the word Trinity is not in the Bible anywhere. You won't find it. But if you look, it's everywhere. <laughs> it's all over the place. For instance, here. When this phrase says, God is the one who strengthens, that's uh, shorthand for God the Father. Uh, we are strengthened together in Christ. That is Jesus the Son. And then we are, are given the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. They're, they're all three in the same text. One God eternally in three persons. And this is a beautiful passage because check this out. He says, God has anointed us. Now, if you were here for Christmas, you may remember this. If you weren't here for Christmas, we'll just do a little recap. What is anointing? Well, anointing is something that would happen in the Old Testament to prophets and priests and kings. It would also happen to things like the tabernacle and holy places and things like that, where oil was dumped out on that thing to symbolize that that thing, that person, had been set aside for a special purpose, a holy purpose, that they had been given a task and, and an office to fulfill. And what Paul is saying is, we are anointed, anointed us. Now, is he just talking about him and Silvanus? And Timothy in this passage, no, I think he's expanding it out to the Corinthians because he says, us together with you. And not only that, that means I believe that he's expanding that out to us with them, with the Corinthians, with Paul and Silvanus and Timothy, which means if you are a follower of Jesus, you are an anointed one. You have been set aside by God for a special purpose. You have been set aside with a holy and righteous task and office to fulfill. You're anointed. And one of the ways you're anointed, we see this in scripture, is you are a representative of Jesus here on earth. You are his royal ambassadors here on earth. You are a representative of his, of his in your neighborhood and in your dorm and in the mechanic shop when you show up to get your car repaired because you, know, you hit a pothole because you live in Michigan. And, 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 and not only have you been anointed, but he says you have been strengthened for that task which means you have been strengthened by the Holy Spirit to go out and do the work that he has called you to do in our, in our world. And the implication is clear. When you let your yes be yes 
and your no be no, you become a giant blinking arrow pointing at Jesus. Jesus, in whom all God's promises are, yes, we live in a world of lies. We live in a world of deception. We live in a world where everybody puts on this fake facade on the outside. We do it in our resumes. We do it on social media. We want to be seen a certain way. We write Christmas letters and send it to everyone talking about all the wonderful things that our family did. And we don't talk about all the terrible things that happened that year, right? We put all of the the facade on to our world around us. But as followers of Jesus, we can actually just let our life be. We can let our yes be yes and and our our no be no. And and we can, we would in a world where everybody puts falsehood out in front, we can put truth out in front. Why? Because Jesus is truth. Because he tells it like it is. He was who he said he was. He lived a sinless life perfectly in sync with how God made the world. And he died on the cross. And when he died on the cross, he took all of our duplicity, all of our falsehood, all of our lies onto himself. And it was crucified onto him and he became our sin. And then he was buried in the ground, rose from the dead, conquering sin, Satan, and death. And so now those of us who believe in him, he sends the Holy Spirit into our lives. Look at this. We are given the Holy Spirit as a seal on our hearts, think of like a, an envelope with a, a seal, a wax seal on it. It is like the Holy Spirit has been placed inside of you and sealed up. It is the down payment, which means you have been bought with the price of Jesus's blood. And he is going to do this work in your life and transform you into, from the inside out. It's just like it says in Philippians 1.6, where it says, I'm sure of this, that he who started a good work in you will carry it out to completion in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. You are going to become more and more like Jesus, whether you like it or not, if you follow him. Because he is going to transform you from the inside out. He's guaranteed it with a seal, with a down payment. And Paul is basically saying, it's official. You're going to have your life be more yes and yes and no and no. And that means that one day, maybe not today and probably not tomorrow, one day, All promises will be made, yes, in Jesus toward you. Now check out this other implication. If all of God's promises are yes in Jesus, if we all have the Holy Spirit at the center of uh, our lives, and, and by the way, he uses the phrase heart here, and the heart, our heart is more than our emotions. It's the decision making engine of our life. It's our will. So if he's placed the Holy Spirit in our will, to, he transforms our will, our decision making more into Jesus. If that's true, then two radical things are true. You can let your yes be yes and your no be no because you don't have to hedge your bets or protect yourself, you can be you. Now think about the implication. Sometimes we say yes when we mean no, or we say no when we mean yes because we're afraid. We're afraid of how people are gonna perceive us. We're afraid about how people are gonna treat us. We're afraid because we have seen people use things against us. When we've been honest about our own sin or our own failure, People have used that and weaponized that against us. But if in Jesus it is already true that we have been sealed and we are going to become more like Christ and we are set with the down payment that he is going to purchase us and bring us to glory, we don't have to be afraid. And yes, sometimes people are still going to use stuff against you. 
but Jesus has got your back. Not only that, look at this other implication here. This is a big one. You can believe what is right and true even when you haven't seen it play out yet in other people's lives. You can assume the best in other people. You can lean on the promises of God and place your security there when you trust that Jesus is at work in someone else's heart as much as he is in yours. I think this is part of what Paul is doing here. He's encouraging the Corinthians with this. They had assumed the worst possible motives about Paul. They just, everything that Paul did, they just assumed the worst and assumed the worst. And what he's doing is he's inviting them into this world where we don't have to do that, where we can believe the best. We can assure people that even when we don't see it, which... Paul, Paul's like, I wasn't lying to you. I wasn't breaking a promise. You didn't see what was going on. Believe the best. He was doing something for their good, which we'll see next week. And he just wanted them to trust that. So now, what I'd like to do today is just leave you with this. Then I'm gonna pray. Is there an area in your life where your yes has not been yes? Where your no has not been no? where you've been yes, yes, no, no at the same time? <laughs> is there somebody in your life that you have believed the worst in rather than believing the best? Start making those areas right this week. I don't know what that means for you. Have the conversation that you need to have. Follow through where you haven't followed through and then leave the results to Jesus. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for Jesus in whom all promises are yes. <laughs> and along with Paul, we say yes and amen to that. And so we recognize in our own hearts our proclivity toward duplicitousness, that we, we, are, we are wired in such a way that we wanna self-protect we don't always want our yes to be yes and our no to be no. It'd be easier to just say yes and we mean no so that nobody will ask us any questions. But we just pray that you would sanctify that version of us, that part of us. We, just, we, we have the tendency to do it with other people. We believe the best in ourselves and the worst about others. <laughs> and we just pray that you would help us to look at others and believe the best about them, that you are doing that transforming work in them as well. And we pray that we would do none of this for our own glory, that this would be for the glory and the fame of Jesus, um, that when we live lives that are just more and more consistent and whole, our community will become more consistent and whole. And as we are more consistent and whole, we become a giant blinking arrow towards your son, Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.